reminder, as we have, um, uh, our covenant children, those who have kind of grown up in the church and beginning to lead and worship, what a blessing that is. And I also want to point out that I believe this is the very first time that we've had uh, Matt Harris up here drumming, and um, I think you told me you wanted me to point that out, so that's why I'm doing that, Matt. Um, was that not what you had said? I can't remember which way you wanted me to go, but... Um, what a blessing. Thank you all. And thanks to Jason and to Steve for leading us uh, in our music and Adam as well this morning. Well, we're continuing this week uh, in our look at Grace Dangerous as we keep kind of going through Scripture. And today we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. It's a passage that you are probably uh, familiar with, but if not, it's a great story. So let's begin here. On the way to Jerusalem... Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them... When he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean, but the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray that you would be with us on this morning. As we hear this story, we pray that you would speak to us through this remarkable passage. And that we, Lord, might continue to seek to be more like you and to build for God's coming kingdom. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So Luke tells us that Jesus is continuing in his mission. In fact, he's continuing now to get closer to Jerusalem. And what we need to realize as we hear that word Jerusalem, that this is not just some kind of, you know, GPS coordinate, but rather what Luke is really wanting us to understand is that Jesus is getting closer and closer to death, that the shadow of the cross is growing. And we said last week that if you really want to understand Jesus, that you also have to understand him in light of the cross in light of his death, if you want to be a disciple, so too do we need to understand what it means to die, what it means to suffer and to count the cost. And so Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem. And as he does so, he decides to go into the borderlands of Galilee and of Samaria. Now you perhaps have already heard this. This would not necessarily be the journey that most uh, Jewish folks would take. Uh, they would prefer to not have to get close to Samaria at all. Uh, they would prefer, if you will, to take the, the, the somewhat comfortable uh, bypass, to take 465, if you would. It may not be the most direct way, but it gets you around what, you, what many would have perceived as being safer, more, more comfortable, if you 
will. But Jesus, Jesus was not going to stay away from the heat. In fact, he decides to run towards it, towards this place where uh, Jews and Samaritans might come together, a place that was always rife for dissension, for pain, and for struggle. And as he gets nearer a particular village, uh, he, he hear, or ten lepers begin to shout out to him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, it's important to remember that leprosy was not just something that separated the leper from physical health, that leprosy uh, separated them from emotional health, from communal health, from spiritual health as well. There was this great fear that, that, that leprosy, um, that, that they might infect somebody else. And so they were excommunicated, the leper was, from, uh, from the community. They were excommunicated from their friends and from their family. Not only that, they couldn't go and worship at a synagogue at all. And so they were separated from worshiping with others. And whenever they were near someone, of course, you probably heard this, they he always had to yell out, unclean, unclean. And so there was this great distance between them and anyone else. Now, I want to take a, a, just a brief detour here for a moment and point something out about this, which is, we don't know this until later in the passage, but there is at least one Samaritan, maybe there are more, we don't know, but there at least one Samaritan and then some other Jews that were a part of this leprous group. And I think that's important to point out because it's fascinating that in most other settings, of course, they would never uh, be caught next to one another, a Jew and a, and a Samaritan. But here, of course, all of a sudden, they don't mind being close together. Someone has said their pain and suffering have eliminated the divisions that would otherwise have ruled the day. I think perhaps another way to begin to see this is that when, when you have a real clarity of need, in their case, of course, it was a need for healing, but it can be almost anything else. When you have a clarity of mission, all of a sudden, all those things that used to separate you or divide you, while they may still be there in some sense, they're, they're much lower uh, much less important than they were otherwise assumed to be. I thought about the story, I've told you all this before, about when I was, uh, lived in Bonn for a little while, Germany, to do some language training, how it was me and, and 10 other uh, Arabic-speaking uh, men. They were all men, uh, and just me, uh, American, and them from Palestine and Saudi Arabia and Libya, places like this. And you know, if we were in a comfortable setting, like here in America, or if we were in their country, which would have been a comfortable setting for them, all that we would have talked about, all that we would have seen, of course, would be our differences, right? If we would have come together at all. But there, it's this fascinating thing that happens when you're all of a sudden, you're all together, and you realize that you have one common goal, which is how do we, how do we learn this crazy language, and, and how, do we, how do we figure out this foreign culture, and, and how do we get on the bus that takes us to school and not someplace else? When you have all of this, all of a sudden, that becomes the main thing. And so you have this very diverse group of people who all of a sudden are, are, are clear on being together because we have have one main thing that we're wanting. Now, we of course still had differences and we would talk about those differences, but they weren't nearly as important as us being kind of on this mission together. I think a lot of times when it comes to churches and you see these issues that may divide churches and it's not of course that those divisions or those, those differences are unimportant or that you shouldn't talk about them, 
But when you have a real clarity of mission, that you know who you are as followers of Jesus, when you have real clarity about what your call is in terms of being shaped like Jesus and building for God's kingdom, when you have real clarity on that, the differences seem much less important than they would have. But if you don't know that, and you don't know who you are and why you're there and where you're going, I can promise you, you will have plenty of time to find things about people around you that you do not like. And so this group, this strange group between Samaritan and Jews are all together, and they are screaming out in one voice to Jesus, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And we're told that Jesus saw them. Now, a lot of times when we hear those words, Jesus saw them, we would just think physically saw them. But the truth is, of course, is that it also means much more. When the gospel writers say that Jesus sees somebody, it means that he sees them emotionally. He he sees them spiritually. It's much deeper than just a physical Seeing, I'm reminded, I don't remember where I heard this, uh, this, this narrative that this homeless man was talking about, just what it was like to be homeless. And so he, you know, he talked about the struggles, about you know, not knowing where you're going to lay your head, not knowing where you're going to eat. But he said perhaps one of the greatest struggles was just the fact that, that and maybe, Scott, maybe you preached this, I don't remember. What I remember is the greatest struggle was people not looking at you when they walked by. I don't think we oftentimes think about the importance of just simply being seen and what difference that makes in our lives. So Jesus sees them. Now after seeing them, he tells them to go to the priest. To go to the priest, show yourself to the priest, he'll see that you've been healed. And then, of course, if that happened, then they can rejoin their friends and their families. Then they can go back and worshiping together. Then they don't have to shout out how unclean they are. And it's really important here to see what Jesus says. Or excuse me, to see what Luke, how Luke describes this. He says this, And as they were going, they were healed. Did you hear that? He didn't say that all of a sudden they were healed and then they started going. He said as they were going, they were healed. This is something that we bring up at least a couple times a year because I think it's so important because it's incredibly countercultural and it's counter-church cultural, which is this. We oftentimes believe, well, all we need to do is if we read something in Scripture or we read a book about Scripture or we hear a sermon and it says, oh, okay, this is who Jesus says we are. This is what Jesus says we are called to do. That we will just kind of almost magically, we will have those inclinations. We will almost magically have those desires. And as soon as that happens, then we will begin to do those things. Right? But look at the lepers What it says is as they were going, meaning, do you know what? That very first step that the leper took towards the priest, you know what? His leg still looked like it was full of leprosy. That those legs and those arms, as he took those initial steps, there was no change yet. But as he continued to go, as they continued to go, then in that process, those steps of faith, then things began to change. So, for instance, 
If we sit here and we talk about generosity and I say, okay, we need to be a generous people. And you, I think people are like, all right, yeah, you know, that's a great point. And we th- expect that the next morning when we wake up, we will all of a sudden have these massive urges to give our money away. It'll just be changed like that. Or we talk about loving our neighbor and it's as if, okay, we, we know we should love our neighbor. And we say, oh, yes. And we expect that the next day we're all going to have these massive urges to go and knock on the door of somebody that we don't know and just kind of get to know them. And, but the truth is this, that more than likely, if you write checks still, I don't know, I write one every once in a while, that, that when you begin to write that check, you're going to look at your hand and it is going to continue to be full of leprosy. Meaning, You are going to have no desire when you start writing that check to actually write that check. Or when you go over to knock on the door, you're going to see that your hand, again, still has scales on it. It's not yet ready. But it is in the practice of knocking on the door that the scales begin to fall. It is in the practice of writing that check. It is in that practice daily that as you continue to do so, it is in that way, more often than not, that we then begin to be changed. It is in that process that we then begin to be healed. We cannot sit there and wait to be healed and wait to be made whole and then we can begin to start living for Jesus. No, no, no. As we are on mission together, then we begin to be transformed. And so all of these lepers, they begin to walk towards the priest. Which brings us then to verse 15. Now, I want us to pause here for just a moment because verse 15 is a pretty succinct passage, just part of the passage, just one sentence, and yet in many ways, it is incredibly rich in terms of helping us to understand what is one of the greatest themes of this particular uh, story, which is that of gratitude and living a life of thanksgiving. Let's look at that verse here quickly. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice. Let's just kind of go through this here for a moment. Then one of them. Now, I don't know how true this is. I don't think that Jesus here or that Luke is trying to do a math problem for us, but I do find it interesting that it was one out of 10. It makes me wonder whether or not there isn't something to be said for the fact that perhaps about 10% of of the world or 10% of us actually live a life of gratitude and thanksgiving. And the 90% struggle with that. I began to wonder, we hear a lot about the 1%, obviously, for financial and and wealth reasons, but I began to wonder, what would I be like if we wanted to start a 10% movement where we were a 10% as a church, where we were part of a 10% that said, we are going to live our lives differently. We're going to begin to live lives that have been shaped by thanksgiving and gratitude. What would that look like? Now, it's a great idea, of course, of thinking about joining the 10% movement, but the truth is that it does not happen without an incredible amount of intentionality. Again, we don't just sit here and magically we begin to be changed. Because the truth is, and we all know this to be the case, is that we are not naturally, at least most of us, prone to living lives of gratitude and thanksgiving. In fact, I think we are actually hardwired to rather see 
our need and our lack and our desires much more than we see what it is for which we are to be thankful for, right? I mean, I I think that most often what we really do is we think, okay, I'm going to start being grateful, so I'm going to wait. The next thing that happens, I'm going to be thankful for it. But that's not actually how you develop a spirit of gratitude. A spirit of gratitude spends less time saying, well, when the next thing finally happens, I'll be thankful for it. And instead begins by saying, what do I already have? for which I can give God thanks. The question is, how are we seeing? Right? This is what we see here, right? This is in this next part of this passage. It says, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, the very first step is being able to actually see what has already happened, what is already going on in your life. I think one of the greatest things about having children, uh, and there are at least a couple, one of the greatest things about, none of my children are in this one so I can be freer, is, is, is the fact that you get to really see a less sophisticated you. Right? Because what happens is you get older, of course. I'm not sure we actually change all that much, usually as much as, as just that we become more sophisticated with hiding those less than uh, pleasant parts of us, Right? So I was thinking, you know, I, uh, a couple years ago, I, um, one of my girls turned, um, well, I won't say because otherwise you'd know how, who it was, turned a certain age. And, um, and so I went there, it was right after, wor- right after church, I think, um, not after worship, but after I'd been at work. And so it was late afternoon. And I said, hey, sweetheart, how has your day been? How's your birthday been? And she said, well, I didn't get to go to the indoor park like I wanted to. I said, okay. Tell me this, this morning, For breakfast, did you get to have Lucky Charms with unicorn marshmallows? Yeah. Mm. Is that pretty tasty? Mm -hmm. By the way, they really are tasty. Um, Okay. And did you get to go today and get a scarf and a a hat? Yeah. Okay. And did you get to go with your mom to, to go pick out all your party supplies for your party? Yeah. Great. And are we just about to go to Olive Garden where you can get mm, your butter noodles that you love so much? Yeah? So, do you think that maybe we could begin to reflect on that just a little bit more than we reflect on what we don't have? Yeah, you're right. I love how much of an example that is for most of our lives. How many of us, when we get through the end of a day, when we begin to focus on the previous day, the previous 24 hours, focus on the things that didn't go well, the things that we didn't get done, the the, the problems that we have or that we see, rather than spending time just actually being able to see where it is that we have been blessed, where it is the things that God has given to us, the things that others have provided for us. Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, he, he talks about um, um, the five loaves and two fish uh, and the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And he brings this great point up. It's just this. He says, what we offer to Jesus, Jesus offers to God with thanksgiving. He doesn't examine it for flaws, doesn't evaluate and appraise it, criticize or reject our offerings. Two fish? Is that all you could come up with? We can't imagine Jesus saying anything like that. He praised these offerings and the lives that backed them up, offering what we offer to the Father. Here's what Peterson's suggesting. 
that when Jesus sat there and he had those five loaves and the two fish and he was looking out over all the crowds, Jesus did not say, seriously, what are the other 4,999 of you doing? Did you not think about the fact that we were going to be out here for a while? He doesn't say, you know what, disciples, are you kidding me? I'm not only am I preaching all day, but now I have to cater this thing too. He doesn't say, what? Five loaves of bread and no one brought any butter? He doesn't say any of those things. He takes those things that are there and he offers them up with thanksgiving to God. And because of that, All of a sudden, God was able to work in miraculous and incredible ways where everybody was changed because of this fact that Jesus did not take the time to focus on what wasn't there, but instead took these five loaves and two fish and gave thanks for them. So it begins with seeing. And then we see what happens next in this story. That then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. There's a couple things I want to point out about this. First of all, turn back means he changed directions. In other words, when you begin to live a life of gratitude, you begin to change direction. It begins to change the whole direction in which you were headed. Everything begins to change when you start living a life of gratitude. But now here's the other thing I want to point out, which is that not only does it mean that everything has changed, it means that the leper, the Samaritan leper, he decided with great intentionality to change what it was was that he was doing. In other words, he decided not just to say, oh, I see that I'm healed. I'm just going to keep going. He sees that he's healed and he turns to go back in order to verbally thank Jesus, in order to give praise to God. I think that's really important to see. David Lowe says that there are two parts of Thanksgiving and I want us to hear this. One is perception. That means seeing. We've just talked about that. But the second part of thanksgiving is articulation. See, I think this is oftentimes we don't quite get to the second part, which is not only do you see it, but you decide to actually give voice to the thing for which you are thankful. You decide to actually speak those words. Lowe says that as you see at the very end of this passage, there's this great kind of second blessing where where Jesus says to the leper, either you've been made whole or you you have been saved, depending on how you read it. But there's this whole second blessing that occurs. I, as I thought about that, I was reminded of, um, of what we've done at a couple of our staff uh, retreats uh, over the last several years. Uh, uh, two different times, we've decided to take time, and, and the first time we did this, it, it took literally hours and hours, where, where, where we would have one person, let's just say it was Pastor Scott, and we'd say, okay, I want us all, we're all going to go around and say something about Pastor Scott for which we are thankful. Now, his was full of thanks, if I recall correctly, right? Some of us, you know, it took a little while. There were awkward moments of silence. But, but, but for Scott, right, there was all these great words of thanks. And as we went around, it was just incredible just to be a part of this. It was actually, I would say, it was a holy moment. In fact, as I sat there, and even in those times when I wasn't saying anything, and when I wasn't the recipient of those words, I would notice that the tears at moments would begin to well up just because there was this incredible kind of second blessing of just being a part. 
heart of this holy and sacred moment of giving thanks. And one of the things I want to challenge you today is to think through what is something that you can do I've already decided when the next time I get together with a group of friends, I already have it in my head when it's going to be, is that that's what I'm going to ask us to do, to take a few moments just to kind of say, I want us to go around and just give voice for what we are thankful. I think you might discover two things. One of those is you might discover just how much in need you are to hear how thankful people are for you. Now, look, we don't do this. You know, you don't say, hey, I want to say something nice about you so that you will say something nice about me first. But I do think that we might be surprised at how much we are actually in real need of hearing that. And then secondly, I think we might be surprised at how remarkable it is to be a part of a holy moment of being able to speak words of gratitude to someone else. I think we might be surprised at how it changes the whole dynamic of the conversation. And so the leper decided that he was going to turn back. But, but now here's what I really like, is that he doesn't just turn back and give thanks. Do you see what it says? That one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a... See, now you heard how you just said it there. Now let's do it again. Praising God with a... You hear the difference there? Let's remember that at the very beginning of the scene, they were also, as the NIV puts it at least, they were also speaking with a loud voice, right? Here's something that we know, of course. It becomes, it's much more natural to, to, to speak your needs and your desires with a loud voice than it is to speak gratitude with a loud voice. Right, have you noticed this again? And this is just with my, I mean, my kids are not any worse, I, I don't think, than any other kids, but this is what we notice. Um, you know, when you go, to, you go to eat someplace and, you know, and they're very loud about what they want, you know, I mean, they're very loud. I'm hungry, you know, what, what do you want to eat? Mexican, because we love Mexican, so we go to Mexican. All right, well, what's your grab? Please, and we, we get a please. Please, I want a burrito. Please, I want a quesadilla. There's lots of volume, right? When we are in want, when we are in need, we have no problem being loud. And then the server comes around to give the food, and it's like, Thank you. What's that? Just a little bit? Thank you. Come on. Finally, right, a robust, you know, at least a decent thank you so that the server can actually hear it. But again, how natural is it for us to speak loudly those things that we need and want, and yet if we say anything at all, to very quietly be grateful. And what the leper here is doing is he's saying, no, no, no. If you're going to be loud with your, with your needs and your wants, then at least match it. If not, overcome it with volume for when you are thankful. See what you need. Articulate, though, or see where you have been thankful. Articulate where you have been thankful. Give God praise. Oh, Presbyterians, you can hear this. Give God praise with a for what God has done. Now, in January, when I was thinking through all the different passages to preach on, uh, and I came to this text, I picked this, this passage uh, with great intentionality uh, because uh, it was supposed to be the last Sunday before I go off on sabbatical. And so I thought to myself, well, this is perfect. I can, I can give great thanks to you all for allowing me to leave. And now we're in this really awkward spot because I'm still here for a, for a month. 
I know. I heard you guys. Just go already. I get it. And, I, you know, I can thank you now for this, but, I mean, it feels kind of weird because then I'm going to see you and I'm like, thanks again. Thanks again. So I'm not going to thank you today for this. But I do want to thank you. And I want to thank the church and its leadership. What I've been given an opportunity this week to do a bit more than I would have otherwise is to ponder this particular passage more broadly. To remember, as we've said, Jesus had counted the cost and was walking towards the cross. That Jesus, with great intentionality, went into the borderland... Uh, between where there is great enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans, where Jesus went in and was a part of the healing process. He wasn't afraid to go into those difficult uh, places where there was hatred and strife. And then, of course, out of all of that, we see this great moment of gratitude. So I want to thank you. Uh, I want to thank the leadership of this church. I think this is a good opportunity for me to share with you. Uh, we've been talking a lot about kind of next steps, if you will, food pantry, the chapel, things like this. What I want you to know, because this excites me more than those things even, really, is that the Mission Commission last week voted uh, for us to kind of step up a part of the mission work that we've been doing on the near northwest side of Indianapolis. Many of you know because you participated in what we're doing with Straight Up Ministry. It's a great ministry around 69th or 65th in Grandview there on the near northwest side. And they work primarily with youth, um, urban youth, uh, uh, most of them African-American, and trying to help them to, to grow and to flourish and uh, many of you have brought meals to their weekly club uh, meeting that they have. Others of you have helped out with the building and grounds. They have great uh, grounds there with camping and all this kind of thing. And then as a church, we gave last year about $10,000 to help finish up uh, this uh, counseling center that they were building. It's a wonderful ministry. And the question that we as leadership have been asking is, okay, that's great. That's wonderful. Now, how do we move to the next step? Because we realize, of course, and we've seen this, it's not like it hasn't always been there, but it certainly has bubbled up, this kind of racial tensions that, that, we, have been, that we have seen. And so we've been asking ourselves, what is next? And, 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 and can we just stay in our little Galilean bubble? And just take 465 and just make sure that we never have to venture into any place that makes us uncomfortable? Or do we need to really step up what it is that we are doing? And so for that reason... Uh, we have decided uh, um, that we are going uh, to, to really kind of partner even more intentionally with City Life. City Life is a part of, of Youth for Christ. You may, you've probably heard some of them. They work really in the urban areas. And the way in which we're partnering is this. We are going to, uh, to give financially. Uh, we're going to pay for about for, for half of a staff, what a, what a normal staff would cost, um, uh, and for some programming that will then help us to begin to be invested in this northwest side of Indianapolis. We'll continue our work with Straight Up. Uh, that's, not, that's not changing. It's just we're asking what's, what's next. How can we expand that? Now, let me be very clear about this. We are not paying for, for half a staff to go down there and do the work work for us. No, no, no. Actually, their very role and the reason why we're saying, hey, we're paying for half of this because you are going to be with us as well is how can we go in there well? How can we, what are the opportunities that are there of which we can be a part? 
We don't know exactly what that's going to look like at this time. There's lots of ideas that are out there. You know, maybe we start a, maybe we start a daycare down there like we, what we have up here. Maybe, we, uh, maybe we, our, our business folks, those who have good business acumen, go down and kind of help kind of revitalize some businesses. Maybe we, we, we definitely we partner with churches that are down there. A lot of times suburban churches kind of walk into urban areas and, and act as if God wasn't there until they got here. There have been churches there doing a lot of great things for a long time. So we go down there to say, hey, with open hands, how can we, how can we partner with you? Maybe it's helping out. Maybe it's partnering with the school. There's lots of ideas. I'm reticent to even give you an idea because then in like five years, you'd be like, you said for sure we were making a daycare. And I'm like, no, I didn't say that. But we've got great opportunities that are there. And we're partnering with City Life. You know why we're doing that? Because we don't know what we're doing. And we went down there, we would get in lots of trouble. But they know what we're doing, and so we are investing. And it is an investment to say we want you to help us to know how we can move, how we can keep going, how we can strengthen this. What I know is that I need this, my children need this, and our congregation needs this. Now, there have been questions already, and I'm sure that there will continue to be questions in the future, and it's a great question, which is this. Are we going to be successful? I mean, is this really going to work? Will our people take that 15-minute drive down there to this part of, uh, of Indianapolis? Will, you know, will, will, will they decide to go down there where, where, where they will feel uncomfortable, where we might feel like we are on foreign soil? Or, or what about the folks down there? There's, you know, there, there's obviously been a lot of struggle. You know, will they be welcome at all to us kind of coming even with open hands and, and hopefully in humility and saying, how can we, you know, how can we serve? We have much to learn from you. And, and will they be open to that? Or, or will there be a struggle there? And so I want to be abundantly clear here on this, on this very Sunday. I cannot guarantee success. I can, however, guarantee failure. Which is if we decide not to do anything. I can guarantee failure if we decide to just sit here and to complain about what we hear on the radio or the television or social media or we just blame it on another race or we blame it on whatever else, government. If we just sit here and say, oh, let's just blame it on there. I can guarantee you we will not make any difference at all. I can guarantee you uh, we will have failure if we decide just to sit here where we are comfortable and just send a check rather than actually doing any work. I can guarantee you that we will fail if we do nothing. My hope and my prayer is that we will follow Jesus as risky as it may be that we will follow Jesus no matter the cost, that we will follow Jesus into those places where there is clear struggle, that even though we could easily stay in the safety of our parks, in the safety of our schools, in the safety of our homes, that even though we could do all of those things, we could sit here in the leprosy that many of us struggle with of racism and struggle and strife, and we could say we're going to wait until we just magically feel like doing this. Or we can follow and go where Jesus has told us to go.
And so I want to thank the session, the mission commission, for their willingness to take these steps. I want to thank you all for your generosity because without it, we could not do this. And I want to thank you for the opportunity to be your pastor. Because I and Pastor Scott are able to serve a church that isn't perfect, but is also not afraid to take risks. We don't know what's going to happen. But what we do know is that we do not do so alone. We follow Jesus. We walk arm in arm with one another. We, are, we know that we are called to do what we can to bring healing. And in that process, you can rest assured that we will also be transformed. And all of God's people said with a loud voice, Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, all of us in one form or fashion have some sort of leprosy that we struggle with. What we need to hear today, Lord, is that you are here in order to heal us. For that we give you praise. We don't always know the ways to go. We don't always know the ways in which we need to be healed. But we do know that if we have the courage to follow you, that as we do so, those scales will begin to fall off of our eyes. That that which was so diseased will begin to be made whole. That we will be saved. And so, Lord, give us the courage to follow behind you. Give us the ability to see where we can give you praise. Help us to give voice to that, that we might truly change direction and in so doing be changed. Hallelujah. Amen.